Part One, Chapter Thirty Two of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paroled. In the morning, a guard came and took the name of each prisoner, his regiment, brigade, and division, age, height, and it is possible the color of his eyes. Indeed, had he been an insurance agent, his questions could not have been more searching. All of the enemy who were brought into contact with us were much struck with our appearance. Such a motley collection of shreds, patches, and tatters could not have been duplicated outside of a ragpicker's treasures. Indeed, our uniforms were as scrappy and torn as a temporary beggar's dress suit. Could Barnum have shown us around in iron cages, the bearded female, the fat woman, the learned pig, would have sunk into insignificance beside us. The truth is, a month had elapsed since any private had put on clean underclothing, and it is a solemnly sad fact that fully one-third of the prisoners there collected had neither shirt nor drawers, but wore a dilapidated uniform over the bare skin. Blankets or oilcloth not a man of us owned. Our sole wealth consisted of a smutty haversack which contained for rations perhaps a few green apples. Dirty? Well, we were. Not clean dirt either, or a mild type of dirt, but dirt absolute and invincible. Dirt which had accumulated, hardened, and stuck fast, had almost become scales. Dirt which cracked at intervals like varnish on furniture. No wonder the northern papers described Lee's army as comprised of the lowest type of humanity. Certainly they had that appearance, and a well-dressed, comely Yankee soldier beside a rebel prisoner made the latter seem a shabby, beggarly rascal, meaner-looking than any Armenian or unspeakable Turk. And then, most of the prisoners having fought the greater part of the day, displayed faces so darkened with powder smoke as to need only a woolly wig to convert them into first-class Congo Africans. My own costume was on a par with that of the rest of my comrades. When I left Richmond in August, I had a good suit of underclothing, but as time passed my uniform got dirty, then ragged, and remained so. My shirt and drawers were so infested with vermin that I had to sink them in running water in the night, and at last they became so shredded that I threw them away. Hence I was a fit mate for the most forlorn rag-picker that could be found within the purlieus of St. Giles or the Five Points. An old slouch hat, so worn that the brim had to be pinned to the crown, covered my head. A gray jacket with woolen buttons half concealed my bony form, and the skin, encrusted with several layers of dirt, showed through every slit of the jacket. I had bathed many times in the streams, but having no soap, the dirt remained. A pair of old blue breeches I had picked up off the battlefield completed the inventory, for I was barefooted these two weeks agone. By the Lord, Johnny, said a blue coat, if you rebs dress like that and fight naked, I'm going home. I could not help telling him that I was the most fashionably dressed man in the regiment. He just ought to see the others. The northern soldiers crowded around us in great exultation, showing the extra press edition that had just arrived from Washington and Baltimore, in which their side had claimed a great victory. By those accounts, the rebel army was utterly broken and dispersed, and Lee, surrounded, was wildly fleeing to the Potomac. A portion of McClellan's army was in hot pursuit, and not a single rebel would cross the river. A hot discussion followed. "'Do you believe that stuff?' asked a prisoner of an officer who lounged up to the group. "'Of course I do. 
The paper would not have made that statement if it had not been so. The hell they wouldn't, growled out one of Jackson's foot cavalry. That paper says nothing about Harper's Ferry, where old Jack captured eleven thousand of you with forty pieces of artillery. I saw them. And he spit the tobacco from his mouth with an expression of intense disgust. Johnny Reb, said an offended Yankee, if you say we lost eleven thousand men, you are a damned liar. Well, I did say so, and it is no lie either. Wasn't I there? Didn't I see them with my own eyes, and all their artillery taken too? Ain't it so, boys, he asked, appealing to his companions in misfortune. A chorus of assents followed, and the Yankee walked off, muttering something about damned rebel lies. Several of us were sent under guard to Sharpsburg to get water for our compatriots and so had a good opportunity to examine the damage done to the village by yesterday's shelling. It was surprising how little destruction had been caused by such severe pounding. A few holes and fissures and some shattered bricks were all. One house had been set on fire, but being isolated, burned quickly and did no further damage. Our lines were drawn in about a mile from the village, so the cavalrymen told us, and to our intense relief, they acknowledged that all accounts of an utter rebel rout was bosh. While yet at the pump, surrounded by soldiers and guards, all struggling to secure a well-filled canteen, one of the prisoners shoved a Union soldier aside. The action was resented with vigor. Then the Yankee struck the rebel, and the rebel knocked the canteen over the Yankee's head. Fight! cried the crowd of soldiers, and despite the expostulations of the guard, a ring was formed near the pump in the middle of the road, and both combatants placed therein. One big, broad, brawny Yankee, with a width of about three feet from shoulder to shoulder, patted the Reb on the back and said, Don't be afraid, Johnny. The boys will see fair play. I'm from West Virginia myself, so go in and win. They were just about to commence, and the rebel to get thrashed in the bargain for he looked unsteady on his pins, when a mounted officer rode up, and in loud, angry tones, ordered the crowd to disperse, and the prisoners to return to their places. This little incident shows the American love of fair play, and I have always been thankful that officer came along, for he saved my bones a severe rattling. So the fight was stopped, though the men went off grumbling. One fact which impressed the Confederate prisoners very strongly was the prime condition of the Federal soldiers impressed them as strongly as our poverty-stricken appearance astonished them. Stout, hearty, their personnel showed that they were neither overworked nor underfed. Rather, the reverse, underworked and overfed. They were in a bad plight for marching, and could not compare with our men in endurance and speed. They had six days' rations in their haversacks, making a heavy load in itself. Besides sixty rounds of ammunition, a musket, accoutrements, blanket, oilcloth, overcoat, knapsack well filled, and shelter tent, altogether not weighing under sixty pounds. How could they be expected to make good time so weighted? As our preachers are ever wont to tell us of the heavenly race, it's the riches of the wealthy that impede progress. We had no such excuse for not putting in an appearance either in the earthly race nor in the other. We were poor enough, heaven knows. We were like the old woman who, after a not very religious life, sent for the minister to attend her dying bed. When the worthy man began to tell her flesh and blood could not enter heaven, she stopped him with the remark, I ain't flesh and blood, I'm just skin and bones, I'm all right. And so, without a word, more died comforted. 
We carried our guns, it is true, perhaps a single blanket strung over our shoulders, but very often no blanket, a haversack whose normal condition was emptiness, and we owned not one superfluous pound of flesh. It was like a two-horse sixteen-mile race. Johnny Reb, a blooded bay, very spar, flesh reduced, muscles well developed, thoroughly trained, welterweight. Billy Yank, black stallion, good stock, untrained, fat and pursy, rather short in wind, handicapped with forty pounds extra. Jackson's men were especially fond for fleetness, hence their sobriquet of foot cavalry. They were often known to break down even the horses in a long forced march of days. In his congratulatory report, issued September ninth, 1862, General McClellan claimed everything. He says, Our loss was 2,010 killed, 9,416 wounded, and 1,044 missing. Total, 12,469. The rebel loss in killed and wounded was 25,542. We have not lost a single gun or color on the battlefield of Sharpsburg. Surgeon General Guild gives the rebel loss in the battles of Boonesboro, Crampton's Gap, and Sharpsburg as 1,567 killed and 8,724 wounded and 500 captured. As regards the strength of the contestants, General McClellan placed his own army at 87,164 men and our rebel force as 100,000 men. The number of Confederates to a man who fought at Sharpsburg as proven by the Reb records, was 35,255. On the 18th of September, every city, town, hamlet, and village of the North made preparation to illuminate with fire and celebrate with the crash of martial music and the cheers of loyal people the great victory won. Then followed Lee's dispatch. The world had learned to take the words of Robert E. Lee at their true value. The pyrotechnic proclamation, the boasting dispatches, the prevaricated reports of the generals on both sides found no favor with him, and the grandest compliment that man or woman ever received was paid him by his enemies, for the North always waited for his official report of a great battle before it exulted over a victory or mourned over a defeat. Claiming great victories was the invariable custom of every commander of the Army of the Potomac except Grant. The North had gone wild over McClellan's success at Sharpsburg until Lee's address was read. Then the reaction came, and McClellan, the organizer of the great Union Army, speedily lost his official head. In that address, Lee wrote for posterity, not to tickle the conceit of his people, nor flatter their self-love or pander to their passion. Every word, every sentence, every line addressed to his army was weighed in the scales of justice and truth, and his enemies accepted his version without one whisper of detraction, without one word of doubt. Here is his address. General Orders, Headquarters of Army of Northern Virginia, Number 116, October 2, 1862. In reviewing the achievements of the army during the present campaign, the commanding general cannot withhold the expression of his admiration of the indomitable courage it has displayed in battle and its cheerful endurance of privation and hardship on the march. Since your great victories around Richmond, you have defeated the enemy at Cedar Mountain, expelled him from the Rappahannock, and after a conflict of three days, utterly repulsed him on the plains of Manassas and forced him to take shelter within the fortifications around the capital. Without halting for repose, you crossed the Potomac, 
stormed the heights of Harper's Ferry, made prisoners of more than 11,000 men, and captured upward of 25 pieces of artillery, all their small arms and other munitions of war. While one corps of the army was thus engaged, the other ensured its success by arresting at Boonesboro the combined armies of the enemy, advancing under their favorite general to the relief of the beleaguered comrades. On the field of Sharpsburg, with less than one-third his numbers, you resisted from daylight until dark the whole army of the enemy, and repulsed every attack along his entire front more than four miles in extent. The whole of the following day you stood prepared to resume the conflict on the same ground, and retired next morning without molestation across the Potomac. Two attempts subsequently made by the enemy to follow you across the river have resulted in his complete discomfiture and being driven back with loss. Achievements such as these demanded much valor and patriotism. History records few examples of greater fortitude and endurance than this army has exhibited. The great soul of Robert E. Lee harbored no small feelings, and hate found no lodgment in his heart. In the hurly-burly of war, he found time to perform a knightly act. He writes to the Secretary of War in Richmond, Sir, Mrs. Phil Kearney has applied for the horse and sword of Major General Phil Kearney, who was killed near Chantilly. I shall send them at once as an evidence of the sympathy felt for her bereavement, and as a testimony of the appreciation of a gallant soldier. After every battle the soldiers, no matter what uniforms they wore, were more eager to hear the enemy's account of the battle than their own officer's version. By steering betwixt and between, as it were, the average man could get pretty close to the truth. The opinion of the Federal officers on the Battle of Sharpsburg made the Southern veterans who were in the engagement feel proud. In Parker Snow's book, The Southern Generals, page 77, he says, A Federal officer high in rank wrote to the New York Tribune. It is a wonder, he said, how men such as the rebel troops are can fight as they do, that these ragged wretches, sick, hungry, and in all ways miserable, should prove such heroes in a fight is past explanation. We learned to our delight that all the prisoners were to be paroled and sent home instead of being forwarded north and confined in prisons. Full rations were given to us, and if our haversacks became empty, there were soldiers among those who came up to talk to us to fill them anew. So if Johnny Reb was still dirty, he ceased to have the gnawing pain that hunger ever produces, and which green apples and corn are apt to induce in greater measure. On the second day after the capture, the whole battalion of prisoners, numbering 550 officers and men, having been duly paroled, were marched under guard to the Potomac en route to the Confederate Army. By the cartel, the prisoners were to remain at their homes until notified by the proper Southern officials that they had been exchanged. There is nothing so bad that it might not be worse, a fact too well assured for dispute. Reaching the northern bank of the Potomac, we found that side of the river heavily guarded by a strong force lining the shore. They had thrown up a hastily constructed breastwork, and lay on the alert, both infantry and artillery, as if expecting an attack. A fierce contest on the opposite shore had taken place the evening before, they said, in which the rebels had driven them back with fearful slaughter, and they were only wishing those same rebs would advance that they might have a chance to retaliate. We can't go any further, said our guards, as your forces hold the other side. You are free men now, so pitch in and wade across. It needed no second bidding, 
and we went in just as we were. Goodbye, Johnny Reb, shouted the lines in blue. Goodbye, Billy Yank, hallowed the gray as they picked their way carefully over the rocks. The bank of the Potomac on the northern side was flat. On the south it rose almost perpendicular from the water's edge to a considerable height. Arriving on this shore, we saw before us the evidence of a hot action and great loss of life. The Federal advance had literally been hurled over the rocks and hills by A. P. Hill's rear guard. Their dead lay on the beach, in the water, and on the side of the hills in scores. Many had actually run over the steep bank in their terror and dashed themselves below. Hundreds of muskets were scattered about, as well as other munitions of war. None of our soldiers, nor ever the camp followers, could gather up the booty, for right across the Potomac any number of muskets would send their leaden messengers over at the first sign of a living thing. The enemy, for the same reason, could not cross, our sharpshooters being on the hill. To the dead it mattered not. Neither war nor rumors of war could harm them further. But to the wounded it was fearful agony to lie there alone, unattended, and dine within sight of their friends. Several prisoners started to help some who seemed to be suffering terribly, when the warning voice of their own officer across the river was heard, ordering us to keep on our journey and not linger. A ten minutes' walk took us away from the scene of panic and blood, where we found our advance guard. "'In what condition is the army?' we inquired anxiously, afraid almost to hear the answer. Is it scattered, demoralized? Oh, Uncle Robert and his boys are all right, they replied. Then we were thankful. Though the bright dreams of northern conquest, of marching in triumphant array through Washington, Baltimore, and New York, were not to be gratified this time, yet the army all right, we could afford to be patient, and accepting the good, ceased to grieve over the bad. We met Colonel W. H. F. Lee, commanding the cavalry, at that point, and by him were ordered to keep together and report at Winchester. We obeyed orders for some time, but the men began to drop out and wander wheresoever their wills led them. Many of the houses along the route harbored wounded soldiers of both armies, who had been unable to stand the dangers of an ambulance journey to Winchester. As the column journeyed on, it dwindled away at every step some wanting to get furloughs and return home at once started in a business-like way for winchester others took their liberty more leisurely and sauntered along as if they had a hundred years in which to make the trip others and by far the majority went to some neighboring homestead to revive the inner man and to rest our little squad of two representing the seventeenth wandered a mile or two from the turnpike to get out of the immediate army trail, and stopped at a large mansion. On our approach, the host, an old gentleman, came out and opened wide his doors, on hospitable thoughts intent. After a good dinner, he told us he had as guest a prisoner, a wounded Yankee, who had been left behind after undergoing a severe surgical operation. And, he added, the man was the greatest original it had ever been his pleasure to meet. Then he took the party in and introduced us to the invalid. A dark, thin-visaged man of about thirty lay smoking a pipe and reading a novel. He threw his book aside and apologized for not rising, as his leg had been cut off by the surgeon only ten days previously, and he was as nonchalant about the fearful maiming as if he had only lost the joint of his little finger. He proved to be one of the most accomplished conversationalists that I had ever listened to, 
though he never spoke of himself save in a general manner. Of his life and its underlying mystery none could tell, but that his career had been checkered and eventful none could doubt. A sailor, his tattooed arm showed that, a traveler in foreign climes, a soldier under Garibaldi with the mark of a sabre cut across his forehead, a gentleman through all, as was evidenced by that indefinable air of good breeding which, when not innate, can never be acquired. Altogether he proved as great an enigma as he was an attraction. The charm of his voice and manner were such that it deepened every hour, and of the garnered gleanings of his well-stored, cultured mind one could hardly tire. By what strange chance he had been influenced to join the Northern Army as private in the ranks we never learned. After a leisurely saunter, the squad reached Winchester, where thousands of the stragglers were assembled. They were then fitted out in new uniforms and, thanks to the gods, new brogans, and returned to their regiments, and within a week Lee's army was stronger than when it marched into Maryland. Of all the battles of the war, the privates of the ranks were proudest of that of Sharpsburg, for it had been essentially their fight. It had been a contest wherein the individual prowess of the rank and file saved the day. It had been a hard stand-up, face-to-face, hand-to-hand affair, a battle wherein skeleton regiments and brigades, half-starved and foot-sore, had held their own against the finest, best-equipped army ever formed in the new world, and under a leader who was the idol of his soldiery. The failure at Sharpsburg can easily be traced to that vice which more than any other saps the vitality of an army and destroys its efficiency the vice of straggling it is almost as much to be deprecated as desertion though in that instance the evil had been pardonable for thousands of the men were barefooted starving and sick it is no exaggeration to say that during the advance into maryland forty out of every hundred wandered from their commands into the adjacent country many of these were shirkers cowards and skulkers who took every opportunity to slip away and avoid danger, yet when obliged to go into action, made good soldiers. General McClellan had printed handbills distributed by thousands among his troops before the Battle of Sharpsburg. They bore the date, September 10, 1862, and contained an order against straggling, and a stringent order too. No soldier, so ran the paper, should under any circumstances leave his place in the line, if he be incapable from any cause of keeping up the officer commanding his company should place him in the care of the ambulance corps should an able-bodied man leave ranks without orders and become a straggler he will be tried by a drumhead court-martial and shot the company and regimental officers are ordered to make returns to the adjutant general and account satisfactorily for every missing soldier the following letter printed in the savannah republican was written by the most famous of the Southern War correspondents, Percy W. Alexander, and pictured in graphic language the deeds and needs of the Army of Northern Virginia. Conditions of the Southern Army, 1862. Winchester, Virginia, September 26. My condition is such as to render it impossible for me to rejoin the Army for the present. I was not prepared for the hardships, exposure, and fastings the army has encountered since it left the Rappahannock, and like many a seasoned campaigner, have had to fall out by the way. Indeed, I can recall no parallel instance in history, except Napoleon's disastrous retreat from Moscow, 
where an army has ever done more marching and fighting under such great disadvantages than general lees has done since it left the banks of the james river this army proceeded directly to the line of the rappahannock and moving out from that river fought its way to the potomac crossed the stream and moved on to frederick and hagerstown and a heavy engagement at boonesboro gap and another at crampton's gap below fought the greatest pitched battle of the war at sharpsburg and then recrossed the potomac into virginia during all this time covering the space of a month the troops rested but four days and let it be remembered to their honor that of the men who performed this wonderful feat one-fifth of them were barefooted one-half of them in rags and the whole of them half famished the country from the rappahannock to the potomac had been visited by the enemy with fire and sword and our transportation was insufficient to keep the army supplied from so distant a base as gordonsville and when provision trains would overtake the army so pressing were the exigencies of their position the men seldom had time to cook their rations their difficulties were increased by the fact that cooking utensils in many cases had been left behind as well as everything else which would impede their movements it was not unusual to see a company of starving men have a barrel of flour distributed to them which it was utterly impossible for them to convert into bread with the means and the time allowed them they could not procure even a piece of plank or a corn or flour sack upon which to work the dough do you wonder then that there should have been stragglers that brave and true men should have fallen out from sheer exhaustion in their efforts to obtain a mouthful to eat along the roadside the richmond whig in an editorial dated october twenty one eighteen sixty two says we again return to the subject of the condition of the army of northern virginia which we discussed at some length in our issue of yesterday as we remarked in the conclusion of our last article the government has begun to move in the matter of furnishing supplies to the troops, and several wagons loaded with shoes and clothing had reached Winchester as early as the middle of last week. We understand that other shipments of clothes, shoes, and perhaps blankets have been made to the same destination. These supplies will afford great relief as far as they go, and we only regret that they are not ample enough to meet the wants of the entire army. Much good will be accomplished, however, if even a portion of our ragged and barefooted defenders have shoes put upon their feet and clothing upon their backs many of them have not changed their clothing since they left richmond they have slept in it fought in it crossed the potomac in it marched over dusty roads and through storm and sunshine in it yet they have not changed it or washed it because they had no other to put on when that was taken off the reader will not be surprised to hear, therefore, that many of the troops are covered with vermin, and their clothing rotten and dirty beyond anything they have ever seen. There is no Negro in Virginia who is not better off in this respect than some of the best soldiers and first gentlemen in all the land. Colonel Fremantle, of the English Army, on a tour of inspection, in speaking of this battle, writes to the Edinburgh Review and Blackwood's Magazine as follows. In the line of march returning from Sharpsburg were many rich landed proprietors marching contentedly along with an old tattered flannel shirt and a pair of ragged Yankee uniform trousers for their only clothing, while their feet bled at almost every step they took. A short while and the Army of Northern Virginia was in its glory again. Each soldier in the first brigade was furnished from top to toe, and there was a grand review held on the plains near Winchester. 
of this grand pageant colonel freemantle writes i have seen many armies in my time file past in all the pomp of bright uniforms and well-protected accoutrements but i never saw one composed of finer men or that looked more like work than that portion of general lee's army which i was fortunate to see inspected general lee was once asked by a lady of what battle he was most proud he replied of sharpsburg for i fought against greater odds and then he added stroking meditatively his long thick beard to the rank and file all the credit of that day belongs End of chapter thirty two